Mess around and break out with revival. It's good stuff. I love that. That's one of my favorite songs. That's just, whew, I'm ready. Have you ever thought about our basic foundation? Not just like where you come from or why you're here, but have you ever thought about our basic foundation for theology? Have you ever tried to figure out the character of God or, or what God would really have you do with your life? Now, this may sound like an interesting way to open up a series on the book of Ephesians, which is where we're headed this month. And, uh, well, we call it a book. Paul actually called it a letter. And, and it wasn't just any letter. This was a letter that was written to a church. But not just any old church in any old city. I, th- I think you will see as we go through this series that the church in Ephesus was a lot like HCC. You see, when you look at the city of Ephesus... It was a vibrant commercial city. Huntsville is a vibrant commercial city. Ephesus was a wealthy city. Now, I don't, I don't know what your personal financial status is, but I do know uh, from watching the, the news and, and things like that that Huntsville's economy is, is one of the cities where the economy is, is continually getting stronger and, and better. Um, jobs are continually happening and, and being created. And, and so, the, you know, we're, we're on track for something like that. Ephesus was also home to the goddess Diana. And the temple that was built to worship her was one of the seven wonders of the world. I thought, hey, we've got the Space and Rocket Center. <laughs> we've got that big rocket. You can, you know, see it from Nashville. You know, that's it's close. All right. It was in Ephesus that God led the Apostle Paul to start the church, uh, to plant a church in, in, Ephesians, in, in Ephesus. Um, it, it was here in Huntsville that over 50 years ago, God led a small group of men and women to step out of their comfort zone and start a Christian church. On his third missionary journey, Paul spent three years in Ephesus preaching and teaching. But what is it about God that compels us to go when he calls us? What is it about God that challenges us to do things differently than the way the world might do them? What is it about God that makes us think he can use us in the same way that he used the Apostle Paul? Or that that he can use us in the same way that he used the church in Ephesus? I think my friends here may be able to shed some light on the answer to my question. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I bet you didn't know that when you were a kid and prayed that prayer, you were praying a solid foundation for a study on theology. I bet you didn't know that you had a deep outline of our beliefs in God. Three quick phrases. Three decorations of God's character. God is great. He is supreme and divine. He is big and powerful. Think of the biggest thing or concept that you can think of. The universe or the farthest star. Expand your mind as wide as it can go. Then imagine all of that as a grain of sand in God's hand. And you're still shortchanging him. He is omnipotent. He is not bound by space. He's everywhere all the time. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee to escape your presence? 
If I were to ascend to heaven, you'd be there. If I make my bed in the depths, there you would be. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Not only does God know everything, he is wise. He knows all the facts and acts the right way. God is omnipotent. God is not limited in power. In fact, he's able to supersede the universal laws of physics. He parted the Red Sea. He walked on the water. He also stilled a storm. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus looked at them and replied, This is impossible for mere humans. But for God, all things are possible. God is great. His greatness is evident in the creation of the earth. And in the involvement in our lives. God is good. What is good? Webster defines good as morally excellent. Virtuous. Righteous. Satisfactory in quality, quantity, or degree. There are over 45 definitions of the word good in the dictionary. But does this sum up God's character? Can God be described in those 45 descriptions of good? Maybe we're saying it the wrong way. Maybe we have it backwards. We shouldn't look at God and say, hey, God happens to be doing good things. Rather, we must redefine good. When God created the world, he was good. When God flooded the earth, he was good. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he was good. When God rescued the Israelites from captivity, he was good. When God allowed all the firstborn in Egypt to be killed, he was good. When God allowed Jesus to be crucified, he was good. When God allowed Job, the righteous, to suffer, God was good. When God allowed dictators to kill thousands of people, God was good. When you were born, God was good. When you failed that test, God was good. When your parents got a divorce, God was good. When those who do not accept God spend eternity apart from him, God is good. The goodness of God doesn't change with our circumstances. Nor does the presence of evil and bad things diminish the perfect goodness of God. God is without sin. God has no fault. God is perfect. So then... Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is just. As for the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. He is a reliable God who is never unjust. He is fair and upright. God is merciful. When God saw their actions, they turned from their evil way of living. God relented concerning the judgment he had threatened them with, and he did not destroy them. God's goodness yields good things. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. God is good. Good is God. Let us thank him for our food. I was wondering how that fits into the character of God. Yeah, where are we going with this? God is our provider. We often think of God as a cosmic vending machine. Where in our times of trouble, we pull the lever and he dispenses magic solution. What we don't often think of are the little blessings. Air. Warmth. Light. Trees. A beautiful sunrise on a spring morning. Doorknobs. Doorknobs? Well, and desk and dandelions and ducks and pants. All right, that's enough. <laughs> well, I'm just getting started. That's only the D's. I'm working my way through Moving the alphabet. Moving on. <laughs> 
we take the little tangibles for granted. What we almost never think of are things that are even less tangible. Why do you think art is pretty? Why do you have a favorite color? Why do you like the smell of a flower? God gave you not only things to appreciate, but more importantly, the ability to appreciate those things. God's provision goes far beyond meeting our needs. God, like every loving parent, wants to provide a cornucopia of experiences to consume and enjoy. God is the creator with a capital C. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is our authority. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom extends over everything. Yet, the king of kings. The Lord of lords. The ruler over the earth and the whole universe. Sees fit to make that sunrise daily. And that moon sits fixed in its position. He watches over his creation that he so lovingly created. He knows you inside and out. He knows what you need long before you need it. Jesus explained this to his disciples and those that gathered around him to hear him speak. Just imagine him in a field by the sea. The field is full of flowers on a beautiful day. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. There's more to life than food and more to the body than clothing. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add an hour to his life? So if you cannot do such a thing as this, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, ye people of little faith? So do not be overly concerned about what you will eat and what you will drink, and just don't worry about those things. For all the nations of the world pursue these things. And your Father knows that you need them. God is great. His greatness is evidenced through his power and might. God is good. He is utterly unique in his goodness. Let us thank him. For our lives. For our many blessings. For dying on a cross. For me. For me. For me. For me. For you. And for you. And you. The ultimate provision. He provided a way for us to be with him. Forever. For eternity. Amen. Amen. You know, we were looking for something that could illustrate a month-long focus on two words, immeasurably more. We found that, and I thought, man, that's just spot on. It's true. God is good. No matter what's going on in our lives, He is good. You see, Paul knew this. He knew that God is good no matter what was happening in his life. And I want you to continue to think about these words as we go through this series in Ephesians. Will you pray with me? Father God, this morning we come and we open up your word. A letter that was written to a church. And as I said earlier, some similarities to to this church right here. 
I pray that as we, we look at these words from Paul to the church in Ephesus, that, that we will uh, we'll be challenged by them, we'll be sharpened by them, we'll accept them as true and right, that we'll not just hear them, let it come in one ear and out the other, but that we will seek out ways that we can apply them to our lives. We will seek out ways uh, as we go through this study on how, how we can allow you to be immeasurably more than what we give you credit for sometimes, how we can allow you to do immeasurably more in our lives as individuals and also as a family of Christians. I pray that you'll just uh, open us up wide open to your word right now. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump in and see what God has to say to us from his word. As you turn to Ephesians 1, uh, I want to talk to you just a second. Has anyone ever heard the phrase that he or she was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Have you heard that before? Okay. Um, what exactly does that mean? Has, has anybody in this room actually been born with a silver spoon in their mouth? Anyone? And nobody here was born rich. Oh, you're like me. You should have been born rich instead of so good looking. I get it. Okay. Um, that's good. I understand. I have a confession to make this morning. Something you may not know about me. I was born... Not only with a silver spoon in my mouth, but a gold spoon, and a diamond spoon, and a ruby spoon, and an emerald spoon. I was born rich. I should say, I was reborn rich. You see, if you're a baptized believer in Christ, when you were born again, you were born rich. But the sad part is, most Christians, we don't live like we're rich. Either we don't realize how rich we are, or we just don't understand the true riches that we have in Christ. We don't understand things like immeasurably more. Every now and then you hear a story on the news about an individual who has been living like a pauper. And, and, and people just see them their whole life and, oh, that poor person. And then they die and you find out that they were a millionaire. A whole room full of money, you know. Uh, there was a story that happened years ago. It made history. It's, it's actually one of my favorites. It was a lady. Her name was Hetty Green. Now, she died in 1916. Like I said, this happened a long time ago. But the fact that she died in 1916 makes this so much more impressionable to me. She was actually called America's greatest miser. Her estate in 1916, when she died, was valued at over $100 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money now. She ate cold oatmeal every morning because it cost too much to heat it up. Her own son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in getting him help because she was looking for a, a free clinic that would take care of his, his leg, what was going on with his leg. And because it took her so long to find a free clinic, he, it cost her son his leg. She was rich. She died with over $100 million, but she chose to live like a pauper. She allowed her family to even suffer physically. So my question today for you is, are you living like a prince or a pauper? Are you living like a princess or a pauper? If, if you've been living like a pauper, I hope that this series will change you. I hope this series will challenge you to completely turn yourself around and go from the gutter to the palace, so to speak. From the soup line to the banqueting table. And I'm not talking finances anymore, people, in case you missed that smooth transition. We're going to look into Ephesians because it's an amazing book. It has been, it's actually been called the Queen of the Epistles. It describes the glorious church. It describes the Bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote it 
while he was in prison somewhere in Rome between 62 and 63 AD. We're going to start with Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God of the, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. <clears throat> Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is this guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You know, the first 14 verses here deal with the spiritual blessings and the riches that we have in Christ. And in verses 15 through 23, Paul prays that all of God's people's eyes will be opened so that we might see and understand all of these blessings. Church family, you and I, we are rich. We have been blessed. We were born with a golden spoon in our mouths. And I want to take a glimpse at those blessings and those riches. I want to look at verse 3, verses 3 and 4 again. Verse, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Brothers and sisters, verse 3 tells us that we have been blessed. We've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Christ dwells at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He rules over all the earth as well as all the heavens that we can't see. He rules over the angels as well as the demons. Christ reigns supreme and you and I co-reign with him. He, he has blessed us. 
He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Something to, to, to look at here in the Old Testament, most of God's blessings were physical blessings. Land, crops, animals, family. Today, God promises to take care of our needs. It's just like the ladies were sharing. But most of the blessings are spiritual. Some of these are instant. Some of these are spiritual blessings that happen to us right here and right now. And some of those spiritual blessings are going to come when we get to heaven. But our riches, they've been planned by God the Father. They've been purchased by Jesus Christ, His Son, and they've been presented to us by the Holy Spirit. You see, you and I were chosen. Verse 4 says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, before the world was ever created. That's how he did things. Before the first star was hung in the heavens, God chose us. God chose the time his son would die. I know the creation story. I know how that works. But, but even before all that, he knew what was going to happen. He chose the way he would save us. He chose the method for mankind to be saved. Those who choose Jesus choose life. They choose forgiveness. They choose heaven. There's a song that says, when Christ was on the cross, I was on his mind. And that is true. But Paul tells us here that we were in God's heart and his mind and his plans before the world was ever made. That's rich. That's more than we'll ever understand. Just that, that statement right there blows my mind. You talk about immeasurably more. I still try to figure that out. Christians are God's chosen people and God chose this plan before the creation of the world. That doesn't mean we can't disappoint him and that we won't do dumb stuff. Okay, let's continue on. Verses five through eight. You see, we're adopted. Uh, Look at verse five. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, verse five says that God predestined us to be adopted. And there's some people who believe and teach that God chooses who will be saved and who will be lost. That before he ever created the world, he chose some people to be saved and some people to be condemned to hell. And if you look this verse on its own, it sounds like that. But we need to put it in context with other verses in the Bible. We need to understand what the Bible says, that God wants everyone to be saved and whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. And so what does it mean? It means that God chose to send Jesus into the world. God predestined the way for us to be saved. He he predestined the way for mankind to be saved. God said that those who choose my son will be adopted into my family. And as Christians, we're adopted. Every Christian is adopted into God's family. Church family, this is a special blessing for us. It's instant and it has future rewards. It's an instant blessing with future rewards. The book of Romans talks about that we are adopted and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Something else that's unique. Adoption back in the first century, it was a big deal. Adoption now is a big deal. But in the first century, when you were adopted into your new family, the old was forgotten. If, if you had a record of, of some sort of a debt and you were adopted into a family, that debt was canceled and that debt was forgotten. Are you tracking this with me? Do you, do you see how that kind of parallels with baptism? Do you see the the instant blessing for each one of us? When we were baptized into Christ, when we were adopted into the family of God, our past was forgotten. Amen? Amen. Our God created us, even knowing we would sin, so that he could adopt us. He knew we were going to be dumb. He knew we were going to sin. And he created us with a way that he could adopt us. We received a new name, a new family, a new father instantly. And because now we are sons and daughters of God... All the riches that belong to Jesus also belong to us. 
And as if just adoption itself wasn't enough, we've been lavished with grace. Look at verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 6 tells us that God has freely given us grace. And verse 8 says that God has lavished His grace on us. Church family, this is a blessing. You and I are rich. God has shown us mercy. He has granted us grace. And in case you're in a place in your life where you're wondering, hey, where's my grace? Where's, where's my mercy? I think that we all do that from time to time. Remember this. God in His mercy and His grace doesn't give me what I do deserve. But instead, in His mercy and His grace, He gives me what I don't deserve. You and I, yeah, we deserve death. We deserve death for our sins. You and I, we deserve to be punished for the things that we have done because we have broken not only God's heart, but we have broken God's laws. And we are guilty. Guilty is charged, but praise God, He has lavished on us. He has heaped on us. He has poured on us to overflowing, and He has bountifully bestowed on us, each and every Christian, His grace. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed. We are rich, and it's beyond what we will ever really comprehend. You know what else? As if those things weren't enough, we are redeemed and we are forgiven. Verse 7 says that Christ paid our ransom. He redeemed us with his blood. He purchased our freedom. We were slaves to sin and he held us. We were held in bondage. And Christ shed his blood because God is good. Christ shed his blood so that our sins will be forgiven. A million dollars was not enough. Hattie Green, Hattie Green's money, not enough. All the money in the world is not enough to pay for our ransom. And it cost Jesus his life. He had to shed his blood so that our sins could be paid for and forgiven. And we are forgiven. Our sins are paid for. Our sins are forgotten. Not because of us, but because of Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, we are rich beyond measure. Reborn with silver spoons in our mouths. Ladies, don't walk around like a pauper. You're a princess. Guys, don't, don't walk around beaten down by the world that we work in and live in. Raise your heads high. You are a prince. Live like it. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. You and I, we've been let in on God's little secret, as I like to call it. The mystery. The mystery in verse 9. It's not some dark, eerie secret. Ooh, what is it? The mystery is that God's letting us in on is, is the plan. The plan that he made before the creation of the world. God's plan to unite all things under Christ. Sin tore up God's creation. Sin separated us from God. Sin tore brothers apart with Cain and Abel. It spoiled God's creation. Jews and Gentiles were separated because of sin. But through Jesus, God will bring total harmony back into this universe. That's His plan. The dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles is torn down through Jesus Christ. Everyone and everything will be brought into unity. 
new heaven and a new earth. We will receive a new name and all the saints will be united in Christ. But wait, there's still more. This whole Ephesians is kind of like the Christian infomercial. Just when you start to grasp something, there's more. There's more, more blessings, more riches. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you hear that? We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Do you even know what that means? Because when you look at it, brothers and sisters, I hope you're starting to get excited about this because I hope you're beginning to see how blessed and just how rich you really are. You and I are sealed with the Holy Spirit according to the scriptures. When we're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and to receive the Holy Spirit, right then we are sealed. We don't just receive a part of the Holy Spirit. We receive all the Holy Spirit. He comes. He takes up residence in our lives. He makes his home right here. And we should live like that. And right then and there, God marks us and seals us. And the neat thing about God's seal, the neat thing about the Holy Spirit is so much better than, than going and having like the notary public take care of it. You know, we need to get your stamp. You know, the great seal of the city of Huntsville. I love Huntsville, but that seal is not good enough. The seal of the president of the United States. It's not good enough. The Holy Spirit is God's official, official seal. And when we were baptized into Christ, we were officially adopted into God's family. And God gives us the seal of the Holy Spirit to prove it. You know, the neat thing, too, is the Holy Spirit, it, it's like a, our deposit guarantee for our inheritance from God. Hey, anybody ever buy a house like back in the day? It's okay, I won't, I won't make fun of how old you are. It, back, back before bank loans and things like that, you used to do an earnest, an earnest deposit. All right, and you, I wanted to buy Joe's house. I'd give him a truckload of money, and he knew that I was serious about buying his house, and he would allow me to take all the time I need to pay that house. Didn't have to get a loan, but I had earnest money. That's the same thing. The Holy Spirit is like our earnest payment, all right? Except that God gives us the Holy Spirit as earnest payment. God gives us our total inheritance when he returns. But right now we've got part of it. We've got that earnest payment of the Holy Spirit in us. When he returns, he, we get the whole inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is God's solemn promise. Look at it like this. As Christians, our salvation begins the moment we become a new creation. We are saved. As we live life for Christ, we are being saved. And one day our salvation will be complete when we are in heaven. So we've been redeemed We are being redeemed, and one day we will be redeemed. That's God's plan for his church. That's God's plan for us. That is immeasurably more. That just blows my mind. But that's not all. Wait, there's more. Look at verses 18 through 21. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We have God's power at our disposal. Now, that doesn't mean we get to run willy-nilly and do silly things with it. But we have God's power. 
Most Christians have never truly tapped in to this power. We've never turned on the switch. We've, we've played with the switch. Kind of, like, kind of like a kid in the other room. We've, we've turned it on and turned it off and turned it on and turned it off. But we've been afraid to turn it on and let it loose and let God have total control in our lives. We, we still like to be that kid. Click, 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 click. Light switch back and on, back and forth, back and forth. We need to turn it on. We need to leave it on. Do you pay attention to what type of power is available to each and every Christian? The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. The same power that stopped that body from decaying and gave it new life. The power that raised Jesus up from this earth and placed him right on the throne of God by himself. Excuse me, by God himself. The same power is available to you and me. But what does that power look like when it's in action? It looks like the transformation of a rough redneck fisherman named Peter who denied Jesus one night and on Pentecost preached boldly in his name. What a transformation. It looks like Stephen, innocent and crying out, God forgive them as they threw rocks at him and killed him. It looks like 12 ordinary men with extraordinary power of God changing the world through Christ in less than 70 years. That's what that power looks like. You know what that power looks like? It looks like 140 messed up people in a little church in Huntsville, Alabama, who are willing to be a vessel for God to pour out over this community. That's what that power looks like. It looks like persecuted Christians in Korea and China and Indonesia and India standing up for Christ each and every day as they are beaten and imprisoned and some even killed for proclaiming Christ. Brothers and sisters, the power is there. God says so right there in his word. It's real. And God is real. And he doesn't lie. It's there. It's there for you and for me. But we've got to turn it on. You want to see immeasurably more in your life. You've got to be willing to flip that switch. You've got to turn it on and leave it on. And use it for his glory. Use it to change our families. Use it to change our schools. Use it to change our workplaces. We need to use that power of God to change our community. Church family, it's pretty clear to see that that we are blessed. We are rich. And this is just the first chapter in the book of Ephesians. It shows us that we are blessed beyond what we'll ever understand. It shows us that God has a plan. Paul prayed that we might have the eyes of our hearts open, that we might know the riches and the power of God's glorious inheritance. We are rich. We are blessed. We have God's mighty power at our disposal. You are a child of the King. As we come to our response time today, my prayer is that you will respond to the words you've heard. I don't know what you need to do in order to flip that switch and live like a prince or a princess in this world instead of living like a pauper. But you are a child of the king. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's time for you to commit to being involved in this church and and in this community. Whatever your response is today, I think that we can all agree. It's time for us to live like like a prince and a princess and not like a spiritual pauper. Because we have been given immeasurably more and we need to take advantage of that gift. We need to live that gift. We need to challenge one another to be immeasurably more because that's God's plan. As we stand and sing our response song today, will you let your response be to live like we are blessed?
live immeasurably more. Will you stand and sing with us?